Well, the Dominican Republic recently instated very racist laws saying, because they want to get rid of the Black people in Dominican Republic, saying if you're Dominican Haitian, predating back to 1940-something, I don't remember the exact year, you're no longer a citizen of Dominican Republic, right? So that means, Nancy, you were born in Dominican Republic, your mother was born in Dominican Republic, but now you're no longer citizens of the Dominican Republic because Dominican Republic is saying, go back to your where you come from. Well, you come from Dominican Republic. So now, how do you go back to Haiti? You're not a Haiti citizen. You're not a citizen of Haiti. So Haiti's not going to say, oh yeah, just come on back because you're not from there. You're from Dominican Republic. So that is what the majority of those individuals were fleeing. They have nowhere to go. And so when we don't contextualize these things, it's hard for us to understand. Hello, family. You are listening to Concrete Pastures. I am Nancy Mulemwasisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a platform to reach out to my fellow immigrants and dreamers. The goal is to provide a space for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We discuss issues that are important to us in the diaspora. We celebrate the joys, the laughs, the bravery that being an immigrant brings. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We appreciate your support. I just want to take this moment and thank each and every one of you guys that continue to tune in every week. Africa, uh, my motherland, I see you. Canada, Europe, Asia, Australia, the US of A, oh my goodness. Thank you so much. South America, thank you so much. I'm so humbled that you continue to tune in. You have subscribed even, and you continue to share the message that we're trying to share with everyone. I'm so grateful. I'm so inspired and um, I'll forever continue to be humbled by your support. To all of our new listeners, welcome to the family. As you listen, please continue to support us by clicking the subscribe button. Leave us a review. We love hearing from you and our guests love hearing from you. Please feel free to reach out to them. Send them a message. I follow them on their Insta, on their Facebook. Let's continue to support our guests as well. Today's guest, I came across our guests by my brother, Raphael. I know I keep talking about him. I'm a big fan of his podcast. He recommended my sister that's coming on. I listened to her story on his podcast, White Label American. You know, we all have different chapters in our lives. And I wanted to touch on a different chapter 
that she has experienced here in America. And I, I believe all of us are going to resonate with some of the things that she experienced. Let's meet our guest. Her name is Martine Kalau. She is an author, speaker, and comments on the human aspects of current immigration laws and policies. She is a CEO and president of Martine Kalau Enterprises, a consultancy focused on providing human resources, professionals with time, resources, and confidence to drive diversity, equality, and inclusion for organization. She has authored two books, Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship. This is an amazing book. Grab it as you listen to this episode. I tell you. And The ABCs of Diversity, A Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion. For those of us that are looking to be in leadership and oh, if you're already in leadership, this is another great book to have and learn from. As a stateless and undocumented immigrant survivor, Martine advocates around issues related to immigration rights and provides resources to those in need by volunteering for United Stateless and via her non-profit Stateless and Dreamers, SAD Foundation. Her memoir, Illegal Among Us, a stateless woman's quest for citizenship recounts her personal journey as a stateless person and undocumented immigrant, her experience as a silent dreamer for the world. Martine provides communication training to immigration lawyers and advocates for increased education and employment opportunities for the stateless and undocumented youth. Please welcome my sister from the homeland, Africa. Yes. Martine. Hi, dear. Hi. Oh my God. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm so happy you are here. I know you are from the motherland. I just want to give our audience a little bit of taste how you came to America. You are now in America. And just give us a taste of how you came here. And, you know, share your journey. I have been in the U.S. for over 30 years. I came when I was four years old. I was born in Zambia and Central, South Central Africa or Central Africa. However, my mother and my biological father were from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So DRC, formerly known as Zaire. So uh, I came to the U.S., my mother and I left Zambia when I, we were, I was very young, so I don't really remember. We moved to Congo, where her family was, for maybe a year, and then immigrated to the U.S., uh, where the rest of her siblings. So she was um, a, from a family of nine, or yeah, nine, and she was the oldest. Her siblings, five of them, were already in the United States pursuing this American dream, and so they brought her over and she, you know, she has, my mother had seven kids. I was her youngest, the seventh. So because I was so little, you know, of course it made sense for her to bring me along immediately. Wow. So uh, where did you guys live in the U.S. when you finally came to the Yeah, we lived in, I feel like it's the heart of 
immigrants in Silver Spring, Maryland. There's, it's consistently been an immigrant community, which I love. So we lived in um, in Milton, Maryland, not too far from Washington D.C. So, uh, and I lived there for until I was probably 12, 13. My mother did remarry my stepfather when I was maybe seven years old. So it was just a pretty normal, happy childhood. Things started to change when I was around 13. You know, my stepfather became ill. We moved to Columbus, Ohio to be closer to his family Mm. so that, you know, he could get extra support and care. You know, by the time I was 13 and a half, my stepfather passed away and he was, you know, oh, thank you. He, you know, he was such a prominent figure in my life and just just someone I I regarded so highly. And he was my father for all intents and purposes. He was my dad. And so he passed away and he was American, um, American born. And about a year and a half later, my mom passed away. So she became really ill and she, she passed away. I was her caretaker. So by the time I was 15, I'd lost basically my, my footing in the world, my grounding, my mom and dad. Yeah, so then, you know, I moved around a lot, but I ended up moving from Columbus to Boston, Massachusetts, you know, then, you know, to Charlottesville, Virginia, where I went to prep school, and then eventually went to college in upstate New York. And then I was a New Yorker, lived in New York City for about 13 years, and now I'm back in the D.C. area. Wow, my God. What, what, yeah. What? Listen, what a story. It's, it, it's as an immigrant and at a young age, dealing with yeah. the loss of your parents, I cannot imagine going through that and then going from state to state to state. During that time, I think reading from and listening to from your story, that is that when you became stateless? You know, I think people ask what's the difference between being stateless yeah. being undocumented. I'm part of United Stateless, which is an amazing organization, really um, focused on supporting and, you know, developing um, rights and policies for stateless people. But one of the founders puts it so eloquently and said, you know, if being undocumented is like being in prison, being stateless is like being in solitary confinement in the prison, because you are kind of like a shadow within a shadow of people. When you're stateless, there's very little, little little legal recourse. So what does it mean when you're stateless? It means you don't have a country. You don't have a home. There are different reasons why be, people become stateless. For my, you know, my, my reason was because my birth country, according to their, their governance and their rules on, and their constitution, I had to claim citizenship of the country by the time I was 18. I wouldn't have known that. I was trying to survive and make sure I had a place to sleep. And my mother and father, biological father's birth country, Congo, um, first of all, it changed its government. It went from Zaire to DRC, Congo. And also I would have had to file for citizenship at a certain age, right? And I didn't have any proof of my parents being Congolese citizens because my mother was deceased. My biological father, I thought was deceased for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Turned out that he he's not deceased. So that's how I became stateless. So when I became undocumented, I also became stateless. So I became undocumented probably when 
Shortly after my mom died, I learned later on that I had a small window, a very small window of time to adjust and file for my own status. Now, let me, let's just think about this. A 15 year old who has no home. I'm I'm shaking my head. How would they even know? I didn't know. I grew up as an American. I I grew up going to, you know, U.S. school system. I didn't know. This is not something that my mom brought up. She, you know, she was ignorant about this stuff, right? Her focus was now that I have my one daughter here, let me bring my other children who are suffering and struggling in Congo. Let's not remember that Congo has been through a 30 year civil war. Let me bring my other children here. This was her focus. And she was applying for US citizenship. Actually, I was helping her to prepare for the for her exam um, when she passed away. So um, that's when I became undocumented. I fell out of status, but I didn't even know it. And at that time, that's probably around the same time that I became stateless or shortly thereafter. But there's no way that a person would know that. And, you know, people ask, well, how did you, or I think the misconception is come here illegally. No, first of all, I don't condone, I don't judge anyone for coming. However, they decide to enter and and go into different parts of the world because a lot of people are being displaced these days, right? Like for different reasons, whether it's climate change, war, people are being displaced. So when people immigrate or go somewhere else, it's for a better life, better opportunity. And sometimes it's just for mere survival, right? Yeah. in, in our, so I just say that because I don't, you know, me, my family coming legally does not make us any better or worse than someone else that, that migrated illegally or what have you. That's not my place to make that judgment. I don't feel that that's right for me to do that. Mm-hmm. But the misconception that people have is that most undocumented immigrants are, you know, come in illegally. Actually, that's untrue. That's a myth. Majority of undocumented immigrants come in on a, a visa and they overstay their visa for one reason or another. I don't have the statistics in front of me right now, but that is the majority of that population of undocumented immigrants. So it could be anyone who comes from Europe, somewhere in Africa, somewhere in Asia, right? They come over and for some reason or another, they just, they, they overstay their visa. So that's what happened. My mother and I, I came on my mother's passport. Uh, she came to the U.S. She had a visa for a certain period of time, whether it was a year. I mean, we're talking 1984, 1985. I mean, she didn't overstay her visa because she got a green card. She applied for a green card and then eventually started applying for U.S. citizenship. But because I was attached to her and there were no efforts through her own ignorance of, um, you know, changing my status, I overstayed my visa. Right, because I was on my mother's passport. Yeah, her priorities were different because her priorities was for for all of us, especially Africans. We are aware of what has happened in uh, in Congo, and yeah. I don't fault her for any ugh, reason. Yeah, I always say that you know because in the immigration system, this complicated ecosystem. In order to justify a person's staying and being undocumented, there's got to be someone to blame, right? The courts almost positions it in a way where if it's a child who's undocumented, undocumented minor, they're forced 
to say, oh, it was my mom's fault. It's my dad's fault because, right, like that's how it's set up. And it's so destructive mentally, emotionally. It's just absolutely destructive. But that's exactly, you know, how it was positioned. My mom was at fault. Yes, it was her fault. But it's always important to create context around it. Okay. My mom, you know, and I'm not justifying, but she was, she barely spoke English, right? It's a lot harder to learn a language when you are an adult. Yeah. Uh, she struggled with the English language. She probably didn't ha- know to n- how to navigate immigration law. The average person doesn't know how to <laughs> navigate immigration law. I could barely navigate immigration law. I'm not a lawyer. No. So she had, she wouldn't have known. And in her ignorance, she just kept thinking, let me save my children, right? Any mother, right, is going to think that. Let me, my, my one child is here next to me, safe. Yeah. But I need to get my other kids here. But uh, next, yeah. Next that was her priority. I, I would be the same. I think that would be the same mentality for any parent that comes, yeah. and even for relatives that do come. There's so many people who have like massive migration, and they come. One person comes, and then they start to pull everybody else. Yeah. But there's priorities, and in this case, it's just unfortunate how things happened in the way that yeah. things happened. But in a way, uh, even though it was unfortunate, you are able to sit here and tell your story to, to yes. teach us some of the things that we are unaware of because a lot of people when they hear undocumented it's not people who overstay their visas it's just somebody who shows up illegally i guess in the country with no documents well they see they hear and see videos that the media perpetuate yeah. of you know migrant workers and mm-hmm. uh, the media is really great at creating fear right like um kind of really triggering us is the word yeah. the media, that's what they do like it's yeah. they're supposed to be salacious they're supposed to trigger so they they position the immigrant as two you know two images this superhuman so this is the person that's so smart they're so brilliant they're at the highest of their class they should they deserve to go to harvard and if anyone else is not as good right like if you're no. not there then you yeah. don't deserve to be in america so that's the superhuman immigrant which i cannot be i never was i wish i could i was I'm like that. Yeah, <laughs> but i'm not and then there's yeah. the subhuman the person that's a menace to society that's going to hurt you and hurt your children and all of these things right so these are the two dichotomies and then the, the, the truth is the majority of us sit right in the middle. And yeah. then these images are perpetuated and we don't know, like, we're not really clear on what we see. This is we, the general we. There's no context. Immigration is so convoluted. Um, I don't think the average person really understands the difference between an, a refugee, asylum seeker, undocumented immigrant, uh, a stateless person, right? It's not always that easy. And I don't expect people to understand understand all of the different nuances but at the very least give somebody the benefit of the doubt that no one would choose these circumstances like no one would say oh i want to i want to go to the us and i want to suffer and be an undocumented immigrant and have to like you know not have a a, a you know my quality of life is not that great and you know i'm perceived as a as a menace to society like no one chooses that there's no reason a person would choose that so at least the very least we can do 
is assume, like ask the question, what was the person's circumstances that led them to their situation? I think that's that's the best place to start for any of us before we make any judgment. I completely agree. So Martin, you go through, but well explained, honestly. So you go through the undocumented situation and you're stateless at this point. How did yeah. you come out of it? Yeah, that's a very long, but I'll try to abbreviate it. Before I go into that, I did want to give another example of statelessness, if that's all right, because I do this is your space. Do it's your important for people to really understand. So, you know, I think a year ago, we saw a lot of us saw images in the U.S. media, right? I can't assume that this audience is just U.S. folks, no. but no. in the U.S. media, Haitian migrants, right? And these images were so visceral of, you know, them being whipped at the border by, you know, border patrol and horse horses. And I, I did hear you know, rumblings of people saying, well, why don't they just go back? Like, why would they take that trip here? Well, yeah. little do most of us know that the majority of those people were probably stateless, meaning that they had no country. That's why they were fleeing because majority of those people are from Dominican Republic, right? So the Dominican, there are a lot of Haitian Dominicans. This is another way that a person can become stateless. So imagine, Nancy, you're... Your ethnicity is Haitian, but you were born in the Dominican Republic. So you would think you're Dominican, right? Like what country are you from? You're Dominican. Yeah. And maybe your mother was born in Dominican Republic. Well, the Dominican Republic recently instated very re racist laws saying, because they want to get rid of the bl black people in Dominican Republic saying, if you're Dominican Haitian, predating back to 1940 something, I don't remember the exact year, what? you're no longer a citizen of Dominican Republic, right? So that means, Nancy, you were born in Dominican Republic, your mother was born in Dominican Republic, but now you're no longer citizen of the Dominican Republic because Dominican Republic is saying, go back to your where you come from. Well, you come from Dominican Republic. So now, how do you go back to Haiti? You're not a Haiti citizen. You're not a citizen of Haiti. So Haiti's not going to say, oh yeah, just come on back because you're not from there. You're from Dominican Republic. So that is what the majority of those individuals were fleeing. They have nowhere to go. And so when we don't contextualize these things, it's hard for us to understand. So that's why I, I just, my suggestion is always asked, like, what would, what's the backstory? Why would someone go to such lengths? And as a stateless person, you have very little legal recourse. There are no laws written for you anywhere in the world, right? You, they're, they're lawyers, immigration lawyers themselves don't know how to navigate statelessness because sometimes it, it depends on like the, the, the rules of sovereignty across different nations. Um, there are no laws written. There is, if, if you are a victim of violence or anything in, in a particular country, when you're stateless, you have, I mean, you can't really navigate, you don't have any legal recourse. So it's really stateless people, the UN, according to the UNHCR, about every 10 minutes a stateless child is born, right? Because if, you know, if you're an ethnic minority, if the if there's a war and the country changes 
you know, governance. Like there are lots of ways that people become stateless. And uh, there are over 200,000 stateless people in the U.S. and probably more, but there are over 12 million in the world. And that number is just increasing. And when you talk about like human trafficking, stateless people are at the highest percentage of likelihood of being trafficked because they don't, there's no recourse. Yeah. Right? So I, I am, I like to emphasize that because we, so that we understand context, right? We understand the picture a little bit more. We understand why anyone would go through such great lengths to try to flee because they're trying to, it's for freedom. It's for something. Yeah. That's what why people do what they do. I'm not justifying it. I just need to explain it a little bit more. So that's just another example of how a person can become stateless. The thing is, with with what was happening last year and all the news, there were not. I appreciate you for sharing the backstory because nobody was sharing the backstory. Everything was just like, where are they coming? And we are watching everything happening as to yeah. why they fleeing Haiti. It's not even, nobody was mentioning Dominican Republic, at least. Like yeah. very little was mentioned about Dominican Republic. It was yeah. really, Haitians are coming to the United States. Why are we not letting them in? Or why are they here? Yeah. What's happening? Yeah. But nobody had a backstory. So just like you were saying, that they, they like to scare us. They like to give us whatever makes the news, hype yeah. us up. And, and uh, also perpetuate the story of the immigrant, again, that those that, that sub-human um, and demonize, right? So yeah. it's easier. It's a, it fits into the narrative when you don't explain all this other stuff. You don't explain why, but you're just saying, hey, this is, look at all these people. Look at these black people. <laughs> like, yeah. let's just be honest. Look yeah. at these black people that are trying to enter. Um, and it's just interesting to see the juxtaposition of how, you know, historically um, immigrants who are black or people of color have been portrayed versus white immigrants, right? From yeah. like the Ukraine, right? It's just, it, that's also a whole nother conversation. But I do want to also answer your, your question of, um, you know, how did I navigate and become a U.S. citizen from the point of being stateless and undocumented? I would say that my life is, I, I don't want to say that I'm lucky because I, if you, to be lucky, I mean, I think that's an overstatement because otherwise I'm the luckiest unlucky person, right? And I've actually had friends who said that, right? For someone who, to lose my parents, you know, lose my mother and father, watch them die of AIDS, be their caretaker in the midst of that. I would never wish that on anybody's life and not even have the chance to actually understand it, mourn it as a child. And then trying to, you know, being moved from one home to another, relatives and dealing with abuse. Like this is, this was my reality. And it felt very bleak for many, many years. It felt very hopeless, you know, in terms of my mental health. I mean, I was suicidal because I, I, I just felt like, you know, I always believe that if you work hard and you're taught, if you work hard, you, you study, you do well, you know, you're going to get far. And here was the reality where I was working so hard. I was getting good grades. I was a good kid. And just, it seemed like life, everything was against me. I was losing everything that I loved and I had no, I was displaced, right? So this whole idea of notion of statelessness 
immigration. It never even was part of my thinking until much later. I was just trying to find a place, a home, people who love me, who weren't, wouldn't abuse me and hurt me. That was my reality. When I ended up my in, after being tossed from home to home, different aunts, uncles, you know, just kind of going from one home to another for a course of a year and a half. I ended up moving to Maryland with uh, my other aunt who was, I mean, she was just pure evil. And she decided she to take me out of school at 16 because she wanted me to work. I mean, that's breaking every child labor law yeah. in a very dangerous environment and neighborhood. Um, she owned a consignment store. So she just decided I wasn't going to go to school anymore and I would work in her store. Yeah. And by the grace of, you know, higher power, the universe, God, you know, whatever, you know, fits, you know, um, you know, your belief system. This beautiful, wonderful woman, Jamaican woman walked in. I, 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 you know, remember her. She had red hair and freckles and asked me one so important question that literally changed my entire life. But in that moment, I mean, the power of one question, but in that moment, I didn't even understand it. Right. It was just, um, I couldn't see past my own pain and hurt to see. And I didn't even believe that there was anyone out there who cared for me. I think at that point, I just felt hopeless. I felt like there's no one I'm this is it. I'm going to end up, you know, I don't know what I, you know, it was just very bleak. She asked me this one question. Have you ever thought about going to boarding school? And I'm like, what is she talking about? She doesn't, who was this person? Doesn't even know me. I have no idea. I mean, all I can say is that some, she was like an angel. She probably sort of assessed the situation as an adult would and wonder why is it this child, she looks like a child working in a store in this neighborhood in the middle of the day by herself behind a cash register and maybe then figured she would make conversation. I wasn't a conversationalist at that time. I just had nothing to say. And I said, no. And then I, that was it. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want my aunt to think I was defying her in any way. And this woman left. She came back a few days later and, you know, befriended my aunt is what I thought. And I, in my mind, I was like, ah, oh, see, I knew, I knew her. I knew she didn't care. I knew she was a traitor. Um, she can't see past my aunt's evilness. How could she not see it? Like she's, but little did I know that she sort of manipulated the situation to get me out. And then it just seemed like from her, I was put in another space with strong black women who were affiliated with, you know, private schools. They helped me get into private school. And by the time I got into private school, you know, I, I had a benefactor I didn't know was paying my way through, through private school. I had no idea how I was there because there wasn't any more scholarship money. And then through the school, uh, they just, they noticed the abo abuse that my aunt was inflicting on me. And they just, they, they said they could not let me go back. That would just... So I stayed and then I ended up going to college and that's when things, my status became a question. That's when it just became apparent to me, not having papers, what that really meant. Cause I heard that throughout, like when I was in high school, you know, we were trying to open a bank account, account for me. And it was like, well, we don't know what her status is. This is back in 1999. Right. Yeah. So we don't know what her status was. So it was, it didn't seem like threatening. It was just like, oh, okay. I don't know. My status is, I guess we need to just sign a piece of paper to adjust it. Like that's, that's how it yeah. felt in my mind. And by the time I got to college is 
when things started to change. Um, I got a private scholarship to go to college, uh, but I needed to work to just kind of supplement my, you know, day-to-day income. Um, was going to work for the Dean of Faculty's office at Hamilton College in upstate New York. You know, through the ignorance of both me and a college administrator, we decided to go and adjust my Social Security card because, you know, what most people don't know is anyone who, you know, if you enter the U.S. and I think at that time, if you had a visa for a certain period of time, you got a Social Security card it said non-working on it. So it always said the same social security card I got in 1981 or 84 when I came to the US, the same number I have today. So, and I always paid my taxes, ironically, even though I didn't know what my status was, I always paid money. So that's the other misconception that people have. There are a lot of undocumented people, persons that are paying taxes because they feel like they need to and they're trying to be right on top of just paying those applications that they don't get back if they deny their application for DACA or whatever else. Yeah. Just, you know, wanting to dispel a few rumors along the way. So, uh, you know, we went to adjust my Social Security card. We went to the Social Security Administration. I was placed in removal proceedings. That's a euphemism for deportation proceedings in that moment. Like, literally, I was put in the system and boom, like my fate was set and uh, to make matters worse, I was uh, directed to the Buffalo court system. And the judge that I had had been, wasn't disbarred, right? And that's a whole nother issue and, you know, with immigration. But this judge had such a bad reputation in the Miami immigration court system that he was asked to leave and ended up in Buffalo just to add, to reign terror to other group of people. Um so he just didn't like me at all. It, it, he was, t- I, I was terrified of him. He was, he terrorized me. He would say things like, you don't deserve to be here. You deserve to go back, to be sent back. Just horrible things. And I had a, a pro bono attorney. I think the other, you know, I'm sort of kind of giving context to, to, Please, One, anyone who's going through this, I think they'll understand do, it. Because I also want to ask about the pro bono attorney. Yeah, I went through six attorneys in my, you know, seven and a half years of going through this. Six different attorneys. Because, you know, attorneys, you know, they hear my story and say, ha, just get married. Like, you know, like it's the Hollywood movie. I, I think yeah. everyone, anyone who's ever been, who's ever dealt with immigration situation, I'm sure that they... The first thing anyone has ever told them, you know, or the second thing or third thing is just get married. Like one, it's guaranteed. One, it's not guaranteed. Two, it's it's actually very, very hard, right, to, to do that. Like you're you're there's an investigator who's, you know, you don't just get married and then tomorrow you become a U.S. citizen. That doesn't work that way. It's like you're investigated for three years. They They ask, you know, your partner's family and friends and all that. They ask them questions. They interview them. I mean, it's not a glamorous Hollywood movie. It's not like the movie The Terminal with Tom Hanks. It's none of that. It's real life where people are really scared for their life. And if you make one false move, it could actually jeopardize whatever is already, you know, a precarious situation. It can make it worse. So um, it's very risky to just get married as, when you're not in love. If you're not, if you have no intention of marrying someone, to yeah. just it's risky. Now I'm not saying it hasn't worked for people, but it, it's very, very risky. So anyhow, 
those are the that the comments I was getting from lawyers. Got this pro bono attorney. Lawyers, immigration lawyers, don't all specialize in removal. That's the other thing. Like. Not all immigration lawyers are alike. So it's almost like you're not going to go to, if you have a, if you need neurosurgery, you go to a neurosurgeon. You don't go to a neurologist. They're not going to know how to operate your brain. A neurosurgeon's going to know. So going to an immigration attorney when you're in a, you're seeking, um, you're in removal proceedings is not going to necessarily be the right person. You need to go to someone who specializes in removal cases, right? So these are things that you start to learn along the way, maybe or maybe not. Um, and so I just share that because some of us, you know, I mentor people who are like, I haven't heard back from my lawyer. I don't know what's going on. I don't, yeah. it's like, well, first of all, are they the right, is that the right person? Do they know what they're doing? Do they understand removal proceedings? So anyhow, they're also the other thing is immigration attorneys are inundated with cases, right? I mean, they might have like 20 to 30 other clients. They're underpaid. They're massively under, underpaid. This is a very depressing kind of work. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it took a long time and they prioritize based on who's literally going into detention right now who's being deported tomorrow right that's how they prioritize which makes sense but that means if you're not being deported tomorrow and you're not like paying your lawyer all this money and you're you have a pro bono attorney you're not going to be the highest priority yeah. right and then they're under they're severely underpaid so on top of that Right. They can't get the support that they need, the team to, to, you know, just to stay organized. It's so easy for them to I don't want to say generalize and say all of them. But my immigration attorney, you know, I could have probably in the end sued him for malpractice because the way he presented my case, I was told like the, the during my my trial, the case was misrepresented the way that he presented it. So anyway, to make the long story short. Your question was, how did I go from being, you know, in my situation, stateless and undocumented to where I am? Um, for seven years, it was me going back and forth to court, you know, having to figure out how to get to the court in Buffalo because I couldn't, I didn't, couldn't get a driver's license because I was undocumented and stateless. So I didn't have any form of ID except my college ID. And so how would I actually get there? you know, get to an air, get to, you know, Buffalo, I couldn't, you know, this is around 9-11, post 9-11, where, you know, there are a lot of raids, immigration raids and like the bus, uh, like Greyhound buses on, you know, air, air, you know, you had to be careful flying. So I couldn't take those risks, right? Because the irony was if I take, took those risks and I, you know, I was arrested, I would be placed in a detention facility, even though I was trying to go to an immigration court to fight for my, from not to not be, you know, detained. This is the irony in the cash 2020. Of immigration, there's a great show on Netflix. It's called Mo. It's a, Muhammad. I forgot his last name. Um, he talks about his story of being a Palestinian, uh, you know, refugee or asylum seeker in the U.S. He was stateless, and the new show that just came out. Yeah, it's. Oh, I'm so watching it today. I'm watching. Brilliantly it done because it takes what is so tragic. Like you see all of these, this catch 22, but then he invokes so much humor in it. It's just brilliant the way it's done. I mean, I, I just really commend him for yeah. that because it's so hard to take tragedy and make people laugh 
but also explain it. And he does it so, so eloquently. So anyone who wants to understand statelessness a little bit more, the juxtaposition of things, the catch 22, watch it. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not bad. So, um, anyhow, this judge, immigration judge was on a vendetta crusade, basically to annihilate me. I felt, and he thought I made a mockery of his courtroom because of the way that my attorney presented the case, right? He presented new evidence in the 11th hour. Um, you know, and, and in my book, I get into the details of that. So the judge really thought that, you know, it wasn't the lawyer's fault. It was me, right? I was blamed. So for seven years, it was going back and forth to court. And in those seven years, it was, I also had to survive. I had to find a way to, 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 to just live. Where was I going to, what was I going to do? So after college, it was a matter of how do I survive? And my mother's last words, swear on my life, last words to me before I left, you know, Boston and she then died shortly after was stay in school, school will save you. And literally that was, it was almost like it was a prophecy. So I just felt like if I just stay in school, it will save me. Like it will be my home. This is where I'm going to sleep. This is where I'm going to find food. This is where I'm going to get my education to help myself. So I had to find a way to get to grad school. I didn't know how, like, how do I get to grad school when I can't get federal funding? How do I go to graduate school? I find that, you know, I've been told that I do pretty well um, with my interviews and I have a compelling story and the way I presented is compelling. So I, I found a way to took my GREs, went to a couple of interviews of college uh university campuses and um you know syracuse university the maxwell school decided to you know invest in me and invested in you know gave me a full gr a grant of you know, this private money of like seventy thousand dollars and that's how i went into grad school right and that's where i decided to take immigration law courses human rights law to understand my case my story a little bit more and then from there I became my own advocate. I started to not just rely on my lawyer, um, but I started to adv advocate for myself. And so fast forward, my sixth attorney decided, we've got to go public with your story. My first um, public appearance was for this late Senator John McCain's rally on immigration in New York. Then I just became very public with my story. I spoke on you know, Capitol Hill on a panel on behalf of the DREAM Act. And then my case was sent to the Board of Immigration Appeals twice. The second time, they did something that I'm told is seldom done. I mean, because the backlog, the inefficiency with, you know, the BIA, they went through my file. They read it. They they responded and they said, you know, this this woman has been through enough. And they literally listed all of the things I had been through. And they said, we are remanding the case back to this immigration judge. And it, so he can, and we're, you know, we're basically demanding that he, you know, provide her, give or grant her um, permanent resident status. So that was the most powerful thing that they could do. So the judge, immigration judge's hands were tied. He had no choice but to give me grant me my permanent resident status. So I got my permanent residency like maybe four months later. And so that's what happened. But, you know, I've been told that that's, that's like one in 
one in, one in 500, you know, people have that situation, that outcome that, that doesn't happen, you know? So, and I realized that that's the privilege that I was granted. There's no prescription in immigration. It's not like if a person does exactly what I do, they follow my process, they're going to have the same outcome. That's the unfortunate thing. There's no process. The system of immigration, like many other systems, were designed for people to fail. You're not supposed to come out of it. You're supposed to just fail in it and then give up. That's that's the whole point of it. But I didn't. Martin, I have chills all over me. Um, your story is so touching because I, me being an immigrant, I know what it takes to do with immigration. I completely know. And the weight, the, the stress out of it, the emotion. I cannot imagine what was going on through your head. Talk about the emotions. Have you had a chance to talk to even someone professional? I've been in therapy all my life. So, I mean, like I said, the emotion of grieving my parents was, yeah. not, that's hard enough. I mean, yep. watching someone die, watching your parents die, being their caretaker, watching them die of AIDS, like that is hard. That's, I would never wish that on my worst enemy. Like that was hard enough and then on top of that that displacement and then on top of that the abuse you yeah, know by yeah. different family and then on top of that like then the immigration so yes i've been in therapy all my life i i thank therapy i'm grateful that therapy is there the mental health component yes by the time the immigration stuff showed up it was compounding. It was like all of this stuff, right? From my mother, my stepfather dying, all this stuff. Now this. They hit you. It was just too much. And the yeah. thing is, the idea of being a nobody was so apparent to me because I had a judge telling me I was nobody. I had an immigration judge who said, you are nothing. You're nobody, right? This is how he spoke to people who went into his courtroom. I, I so then how could I justify? Like, how do you talk that way to people? Just how could I justify? Title, like how? Yeah. Well, I mean, people are, this is... You know, this is the immigration system, right? Yeah. It's not part of the ju judicial system. It's under the, the executive branch. So there isn't a jury in there that can go, oh my gosh. Like, so the judge, you know, depending, I mean, there's some immigration judges out there, but a lot of them are given quotas. They have to get through at least a hundred, you know, a thousand cases in a given year. They're given a quota. There's a lot of pressure for them too. So they don't have the ability to, you know, have like the judicial freedom to really think through cases like they would, like a, a judge should, right? Because they have quotas. They have to get through a certain number of people. That's a lot of pressure. So I, I'm not condoning anyone. I think, you know, I think that everyone in this ecosystem needs some sort of support. There needs to be policies that need to be enacted to change things from the immigration judge to the immigration lawyers. I think immigration lawyers should have therapists. A therapist should be educated on immigration because, you know, the reason I, I had an amazing therapist after, like I used to go to therapy and therapists knew nothing about immigration. So it was like, oh gosh, I have to explain my case. And it just, it was frustrating. Yeah. But when I finally got the right therapist, she was a forensic psychologist. She knew about immigration. 
she worked with other immigrants. She had to testify or, you know, whatever uh, in immigration hearings. So she knew already. And I cannot tell you what a relief, what a weight is lifted off when you go to a therapy session and you say, you know, I'm terrified for my life that I have to go to court in two days. A therapist goes, I can only imagine. I not, I understand. And I've been in those rooms. That is, it's terrifying. It's like a weight being lifted off as opposed to a therapist going, well, what does that mean? What do you mean by immigration? Yeah. You know? So in terms of my mental health, by the time I was going through this immigration stuff, and then on top of that, let's compound 9-11, and anyone who's an immigrant has a negative association, right? They were We were all demonized. Terrorists, terrorists here, terrorists there. And so I was already like fearful of, am I going to end up in Guantanamo Bay where they, they send terrorists? I mean, this was, this was really my fear. Like these are... This is the fear. Am I going to end up in detention facility? So I had these fears that was part of the mental health. The other was I can't tell people because I don't know who to trust. I don't didn't really have like strong friendships. I was friendly because that's what I do. I know that's how I survive. Like I know how to 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 build relationships, but I could never know if I could really trust anyone with this information right and then also you're you have to balance being the girl next door because if you're downtrodden nobody wants to help you know when you're a black woman you can't be angry right because they're all these this is a trope you have to be sweet you have to be like you know and so this is all i was fully aware of all of this yeah. the social dynamics, even though I was too young to really put it into words, I understood that this part of it is I have to don this mask so I could protect myself so I can navigate this whole thing. But it was heavy when I came home, it was like, take off that mask, this, you know, my armor. And I just felt weak, just broken and tired. So you know, like I said, I, I, I went through uh, suicidal ideation a lot, a lot, you know, and, and, you know, anyone who even has an inkling of a thought of ending their life, absolutely seek help immediately because um, it just can go deeper and deeper. And so to me, I felt like, well, I'm a nobody because a judge is telling me I'm a nobody. And, you know, the way that we define ourselves is through our citizenship of something. We are part of a country. Yeah. I don't have that. And the other way we define ourselves is through our family, familial connection. I don't have that. So I guess I am a nobody. And that's literally the belief I started to carry with me. Like I am nothing. I'm worthless. And it was so heavy. And I, I you know, and then it's so hard because you can't tell anyone that. So you have to pretend that you're so put together. That's a lot, you know, for a 20 year old, 18 year old to have to carry. And on top of that, it's like, I have to get really good grades, right? I have to sort of try to be superhuman yeah. so that I can like survive. Um, it's very heavy. It's very heavy. And, and I am one of the more fortunate ones and privileged ones because not everyone has access to the private school education, right? That I had. Not everyone has those opportunities. So I, I'm thankful that when those present opportunities showed up, I did something with them. 
Because that's the other thing, right? Yeah. You can be so broken that you may not even see the opportunity. And I, I again, I don't, I don't condemn anyone for that, right? It's not my place to judge because the mental health piece is so, it's so heavy, and you, it, this immigration can break you. It can literally break you. And it, I came so close to breaking so many times. What the reason I didn't break is not because I'm a strong woman. No, I mean, there's, to me, I say that there's weakness and strength. I mean, there were many times where I like couldn't do it. Um, but I did, you know, even though my friends didn't always understand or know all the details of what I, what was going on, I did have a few people who at least pulled me up. So it was my small community that lifted me up each day, quite honestly. So that was the mental health component of it. It was um, just the anxiety and the fear of going to court, going to court because I knew when I went to court, first of all, you need ID to go into an immigration court. I don't have ID. So when I get there, are they going to turn me away because I don't have ID to go to my, to my, you know, my hearing, there are master calendar hearings that they call them. If you show up to your master calendar hearing and your lawyer didn't adjust your uh, address, which happened to me before, I would give, you know, I went from college to graduate school, my home address changed. I informed my lawyer, he was disorganized, didn't adjust that in the, the court, uh, in the paperwork. So went to the hearing, the judge said, first question or second question is like, what's your address? You stayed it and he goes, well, that's not here. And blows a gasket, right? Is like, court is dismissed come back in a month. And you're like, come back in a month. Do you know how much money I have to find to come back in a month? Do you know that I have to ask somebody to drive me here? Like I can't just come back in a month. It was just so much anxiety, so much stress that would build up. And it just was never ending for like seven years. You're just court hearing case, you know, master calendar hearing, uh, a trial date. Okay. I have to prepare. All right. It just, it was a lot, but for some people, you know, they're going through this for much longer. Seven years is, it's on the lighter side. I used to think it was heavy, but I have, I'm, I have friends. I've known people who've been undocumented for 20 plus years. I know people who've been stateless for 30 years, you know? So I, I'm, I, I recognize my privilege at the same time. And that's why I feel that I have to, you know, go, go back in the fire. I can't just turn away now that I, I'm a U.S. citizen and say, okay, well, my life is better. Let me just <laughs> move forward. No, um, that's not how we, you know, um, honor our, our stories. We honor our stories in the community, um, our communities by going back into the fire, however way we can. I asked about the, the stress because I went through my own stress, but I cannot compare to your story. Mm. Even to the point where I went to get my citizenship, I, I was not showing the stress, but I was super scared. Like the, every step yeah. of the journey of getting your every paperwork, step. there is that stress. It's just like, oh, what's going to happen today? Like, mind you, I started the hundred questions that's required for us to get yeah. the citizenship. So I'm sitting there and then, then questions they ask me, oh, you went, um, wh oh, where have you traveled? I'm like, okay, um... I, I named the few that I knew. And then, oh, in 2012, on August 1st, you, you went somewhere. I'm like, wait, that's close to my birthday. I don't, I don't remember. Why did I go? My heart is going like this. 
the whole time. Like I'm like, okay, if I fail this, what's gonna happen? I'm I'm, I'm not gonna get my citizenship. I'm not. Like, the whole time, there's like so much anxiety. In so me. much. I I remember. I was like, oh, okay. We went to Canada. It was my my birthday weekend. We uh, we went and I, I remember. And then coming back like every day. I don't understand who keeps track of all of the places. I didn't even know they they had that of all the places you travel to um, outside the country, and you had to remember all of the dates that you had traveled. It, it was stressful, but I cannot imagine being in your shoes. Uh, your well, story is super powerful. And a lot you. of the times when we go through something, it is for us, but also for us to share in the way that you've shared it. There's so many people that are going to relate to your story that I relate to it. And oh my God, I, I, I can't. You said something about you know, kind of holding it together. And I think that's just, there are two things you uh, highlighted and, and I, I just want to, yeah. you know, piggyback off because I think they're so profound. One is that when you're going through any kind of immigration situation, you have to be contained. Like you're like, it's like, it's like shaking up a soda bottle, but then like you don't open the top. It, it, you it, it doesn't, it doesn't. Right? But you help. inside, you're like, you want to explode. Yep. You just, you have to be so contained. And that is like mentally, it's so hard. And then the second thing that I think is so important that you, 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 you know, I want to just stress that you mention is your life is at the hands of the person that's sitting across from you or sitting across from that computer screen, which is so scary, right? Yeah. Because yes, the pro even if there's a structure, there's a system, there's a process, really who determines whether you become permanent residents, whether you, you're, if you had an immigration case, you were in removal proceedings, it all falls in the hands of one person, whether it's an immigration judge or the, the clerk, who's at the, when you're applying for your, I used to go and get my work authorization card every 90 days. I didn't know if I was going to get it this 90 days. Was I going to get it the next 90 days? It depended on who was sitting, standing across from me, right? Under, behind that glass. If they liked me, if I said something and my tone didn't make them happy and I had to be contained the whole time, they could be rude. They could talk down to me because that's the other thing. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it's about, kind of almost like making you feel like you don't have dignity. Like you lose your dignity it, or it's easy for your dignity to be challenged. And it's so degrading. Yeah. But you, as the person, you can't show that. You have to, because you need that. It's almost like you're a beggar. Somebody's degrading you, but you have to just be contained. That is so hard. And it, it's, it's so heavy. And I totally get that. And I think... If there's one thing that any person who's gone through any kind of immigration, not even just immigration, dealing with like these social systems, whether it's welfare, whether it's, you know, whatever it is in the U.S. or in the globe, like these policies and systems, yeah. um, it's, it's that, right? Feeling like you're being degraded, having to contain yourself yeah. because you need you need that person's approval. You need that person to help you. And they can do whatever they want. They have the power 
And it depends on whether you get a good person or not. And I'm going to, you know, just add this one story because I also, when you were telling me about your citizenship experience, I can tell you, I went through the same thing. So, you know, you would think as a permanent resident, it was, you know, things were easy and then I can get a U.S. citizenship. No, especially I think, you know, because I was stateless, when you go to get your U.S. citizenship, you apply And, you know, whoever's overseeing your case, they ask you a bunch of questions, right? You get the test, all that. But then they ask you to, you know, provide your passport for your existing Uh country, your native country and all that. So that fear and my my lawyer prepared me and said, it just depends. We have to hope that the person who's interviewing you doesn't get frustrated and denies you because you don't have a passport for any other country. If they don't understand statelessness or they don't get it or it uh, annoys them, they could just deny you of your citizenship. And so I remember being so scared. I did my written test, I did my oral test and literally just sitting there and the guy's just typing away typing, 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 and, you know, and takes a stamp because that's what they do when, if they're going to approve it or deny it, they take a stamp. You don't know which one hits the stamp. And I literally felt like tears were going to run down because I just like, oh my God, he denied it. Like, that's my initial thought because that was the experience. I just felt like I'd gone through so many denials. And he said, you've been, you've been through a lot in your, you've been through a lot, haven't you? And the compassion I saw in his eyes just... It was like, wow, it just, it was so palpable. And he said, I'm even approved. I literally wanted to jump over the the desk and hug him. (laughs) And I I mean, I think he wasn't allowed to crack a smile because he had to stay, but he, you know, he, you could tell that, you know, he went home that day feeling like he did something right. But again, that doesn't always happen. And he could have just as easily stamped it denied. And so I think that's important for people to understand and get that this is, this is it. This is the life of, you know, and I don't think we're looking for sympathy or pity and nobody's looking for that. It's just just understand, at least be open to understanding our stories. Yeah. Right. It's far from it because even the way I used to like dress, I love to dress up. I know yeah. we're, we're like, yeah. we're like, but when you go to this immigration thing, they tell you to stress a certain way. My lawyer would tell me, no, don't be to- show it too much. I'm like, okay. So we got to show that we're actually suffering through this. Yes. Like even when you like, are suffering, you know but your clothes, the thing is with clothes, it makes you feel better. Your armor. It's your armor. Yes. Yes. So yes. when you're going there and you're just like, okay, you got to show that you actually suffering through this suffering. process, which you are, but you yeah. don't necessarily want to show it through your clothes. And uh, Isn't that so strange and sick, just disturbing? And yeah. that we have, there's these dichotomies. You can't be both. You can't be attractive and being suffering. Like if you look put together, it means yeah. you don't have a care in the world. You don't have any problems, mm-hmm. right? But, and, and and if you are downtrodden and you look like you're broken, then, oh, that's going to evoke more sympathy. I, I think that's just, I don't know, like, that's like human, the human condition. It's so problematic. Yeah. But I, I do. I remember really struggling with, you know, as African or Congolese, you know, I just know it, we've always, it's like your armor, your clothes are your armor, you know, like 
If anyone's ever heard of the Sapa of Congo, right? We're all about, we're kind of flashy people. I'm just going to say, please. That is a little flashy. Just watch coffee all over there. We shouldn't be spending money on flashy stuff, but but your clothes is like what lifts you. It's like the thing. And um, so I was defiant about that because it was the only thing I could just like do for myself. And also like, you know, but I, I get it and I get it because I got all of that too, right? Yeah. There's a whole image you have to portray. So. Wow. You've been able to unpack so much. That oh, good. Conversation. I, I, I ramble. So I, yeah, no, no, no. I'm so grateful. But I want to change uh, the direction. There's so many people in our community that are undocumented. How can people reach you? I know you have an organization that you support, uh, Stateless and Dreamers. Yeah, um, that's your organization. Stateless. Well, so United Stateless USL is uh, a stateless organization. I started an organization, Stateless and Dreamers. Um, it's still in its very, um, I would say, infant stages because um, I really wanted to start something that um, can provide funding for both the communities that I'm part of. I'm both stateless and I was undocumented. And so, you know, dreamers are typically, you know, individuals who are undocumented. Um, but for now I have my website, illegalamongus.com. So it's like the name of my book title, Illegal Among Us, um, all one word.com. And if you go there, I do offer like quick tips. So example, you know, here's how you can prepare if you're meeting with your lawyer. Um, these are things, these are the five things you can do to help, you know, create, make the meeting more efficient. Um, there are resources that I've listed um, on like different, uh, you know, a, a toy, a, attorneys uh, based on, you know, re, the region of the country. So different things, um, resources and tools that I'm, I'm putting up on the website as resources. Um, because I think the more we know, the better, right? For me, at least, not everyone wants to know all the nuances of being undocumented if they are or being an immigrant but i do think it's important for not us to not just give the power to our lawyers our lawyers are not saviors okay lawyers are not they're not god they're not saviors they're not higher power they're human beings that are fallible they can make mistakes and so you can't just this is the mistake i made you can't just give your life, your story to lawyers say, Hey, okay, save me. You figure it out. And meanwhile, I'm just going to wait for you to call me. That is not how you succeed. You have to be your own advocate. And so that's really what I try to get my mentees to understand. Like you advocate for yourself and this is how you can do it. Right. They're little things. I'm not saying you're become your own lawyer. No, no, no. I'm just saying, you know, for example, my lawyer didn't even know that I was eligible for a work authorization card until I figured it out because I was taking an immigration law course. And in my research, I was like, wait a minute. Yes, I am in deportation proceedings, but apparently I'm still eligible to get a work authorization while I'm in deportation proceedings. This is at the time. I don't know if the laws have changed. And I presented that to my lawyer and I said, hey, so-and-so, did you know? He goes, oh, wait, let me look into that. Oh, you're right. So you see what I mean? Like if we just rely on this one person who's got all these other cases, who's also stressed, who's also probably dealing with mental health, because how, 
How depressing is it to watch and hear these hard stories over and over again? Don't just rely on that person. Yeah. You know, be your own advocate. So that's the kind of information I provide on um, illegalamonguscom so that people, you know, can just take the power back a little bit. So you've written a few books. Yes. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite one is actually DEI. And I have a lot to say on that. This will be another session that we, we, we can have on that mm-hmm. because of being an immigrant, um, diversity doesn't come that easy as being an immigrant. So yeah. I, that's a topic that I really want to talk on. But I would like yeah. for you to share your books and what inspired you to actually write the book uh, DEI? I, I, cause like I said, I'm not home, I'm traveling. So I don't have, I didn't think <laughs> yes. to bring. Guys, uh, Martine is traveling. I'm so great. She's so gracious to join me, uh, even when she's on the road. <laughs> yeah. So I, <laughs> so I don't have, um, my other book, but I'll say the first one, like I said, is Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship. This is my, my memoir. Um, I wrote this in 2018. It came out in 2018. It really is an introspective on, you know, the experience of more like the mental health component and experience of being undocumented um, and stateless and what a person goes through and the journey. And, and it also becomes a guide um, to navigating that. And um, my second book, which I don't know if you happen to uh, have in front of you or... Well, I have everything in my phone, so okay. I'll, I'll get it right now. <laughs> I have I'm every- looking to... In my iBook. Guys, you can get all of her books on iBooks. So for everybody who has Apple and also Amazon, you can, you can find her. Yeah, it's on. So it's, uh, I've got, it's, it's, um, my, this book just came out this year. It's, um, it's, so we called have ABC. ABCs of Diversity. Yeah. Um, Manager's Guide to Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the New Workplace. It's a tool. It's a guidebook. It's really meant to be, be a primer for organizations companies that are trying that are you know trying to drive DEI um, diversity equity inclusion you know it's like it's like this 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 uh, term that people use but don't quite understand um, sometimes we use academic jargon when we're trying to explain DEI and it feels very intimidating for some people um, some people who I would say particularly who are not um, part of marginalized groups in organizations sometimes feel like, oh, this is not for me or I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to be shamed or blamed. The problem is the more we do that, the more it's works. It's exclusive. It's not going to work. We need everybody's engagement involvement. And I really believe that the workplace is like a microcosm for affecting diversity equity and inclusion in the world. Because if you think about it, everybody goes to work or most people go to work and have a job, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we are actually trying to influence and change and create DEI in the workplace, it's going to permeate outside of the workplace, right? Before we've been trying to do, you know, affect DEI and mitigate racism outside of the workplace, right? And have it permeate into the workplace. But I argue, let's do it this other way, Rod. And then I also um, more specifically argue or feel that 
managers should be the prime group that drives us because they're the largest belt in an organization. They influence, if you think about whether the person's decision to stay or leave a company has a lot to do with the experience of the person, their direct manager. So the manager really influences that. They also influence attrition, hiring, promotion decision, compensation decisions, all of these decisions are also uh, connected to bias or not being biased. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for managers to really understand this. So this book is really a primer. Um, it's meant to be easy to read. It's there's um, there's an audio the also. That's the one I have. Also an audio book at the end of each chapter. Um, there's a little um, exercise. It's you know self reflection and then actually something you can do when you go back to work. Like this is what you can apply. So uh, it feels like a like a if you're in a, a workshop a training session. Yeah. Um, very easy to navigate. It's 150 pages. So, um, you know, that's the work that I do uh, around DEI. DEI is tied. It's a subset of immigration. Immigration is a subset of DEI. Um, I've been doing this work for as long as I can remember. When I was in college and I was going through my own immigration situation, um, I also decided, right, I wanted to expand on it. So my senior, senior thesis was looking at um, I was doing a comparative analysis of black Sudanese immigrants versus white Bosnian immigrants, right? Refugees in the in upstate New York. Um, and I was looking to see if there was preferential treatment around one versus the other because one group was black, the other group was white. Yeah. And in terms of assimilation and acculturation, like how were they able to assimilate and acculturate based on whether they were getting preferential treatment? Because I already understood, like I said, the nuances of immigration. I already understood the nuances of, you know, being black or being you know, Muslim and being undocumented. I, I, I understood those nuances and being able to kind of to get uh, to navigate outside of being undocumented, outside of being stateless, right? There's certain privileges that we have even in our places of dislocation. And so um, that was really evident to me. So I started to do that work even then. You know, it just expanded to what I do now because having navigated through the corporate world and the business sector, you know, you see... I'm curious. I want to know, was there any preferential treatment? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because there are biases that we, you know, that were carried in the local, I mean, this was in, in the local upstate community uh, in Utica, you know, back in the early 2000s. Remember, there was a war in South Sudan. There was also yeah. um, a war uh you know, in Bosnia. And so this was a, both groups of refugees came to that local upstate community. They, you know, they were brought in by the Lutheran church. And so, yeah, there, they were both, you know, expected and to assimilate, acculturate, right? Immerse themselves. So I conducted field study. I went into their homes just to see and hear, you know, what are your experiences in the local community? Right. Are you, when you, when you're looking for a job or when you're looking for housing and apartment, yeah. how easy is it for you, you know, you versus you, you know? And so I, I already knew that those were some of the nuances that live and exist within immigration. And we see that, like, like I said, you know, we look at how the media portrays one group of, you know, refugees versus another group, right? Yeah. The way that, 
you know, you know, migrant workers from Mexico are portrayed versus, you know, someone, uh, you know, a, a refugee from somewhere in Europe. How are they portrayed, right? So we see all of this. This just is reminded not... me of something when you talked about housing, because we, when I was looking for housing, oh. a lot of people trust Africans. They'll tell me straight in my face. <laughs> oh, you know, we like Africans. We, we like to rent to Africans because they work hard. They're going to mm. pay rent on time. And I'm just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I mean, it's good for me, but how about the rest of the, my community? Well, how about that? And also at the same time that they say that, I mean, there's a lot of, it's like a backhanded compliment, right? It is. There's it a is. Whole lot and if they're so comfortable saying that about you, that compliment, they're also probably comfortable saying something else about Africans, right? Like of course. that isn't so complimentary. Yeah. And that's the problem. Right. And you're yeah. absolutely right. So how is housing determined? How is all this determined, right? Those are things that, I mean, we see this not not just in the immigrant community. That's just a microcosm of DEI. We see it outside, right? We see how housing, you know, you know, couples, black couples, um, you know, trying to sell a home have a lot of are less likely they'll get it they'll they'll sell it at a lower price than if you know they're a white couple and you know we see mixed race couples they have to like you know make sure that the person who's not white is not in the house or you know just make sure there aren't any you know um uh any indications any person (laughs) is black in the house i mean like so we see this we see this i mean it's it's absolutely devastating but it permeates into the workplace right it permeates and it affects people's their career mobility it you know all of this is it sits within the guise of bias microaggressions it all affects somebody's career mobility and what does career mobility do it affects somebody's money right the way that they can grow and make money and how does that how does money money affects a person's social mobility yep. economic mobility so it's all connected so for me it's a matter of well, what can be done in the workplace and you know because i spent much of my career in human resources in a human resources capacity you know i work primarily with human resources um executives to empower them, to equip them to do this work. Because a lot of times right now, DEI, like companies are like, oh, we got to do DEI so we can get our employees off our back or let's be part of the bandwagon. And then they sort of dump it on the HR person, right? And the HR person is not experienced. They already have a whole lot of work on that they're doing. Um, it, They just feel like, yeah, it feels like they just, they got all this extra work dumped on them, unfortunately. Yeah. And so how do we, you know, how do we change that? How do we empower them? How do we get them to position DEI as a business structure within an organization that actually can help grow the organization as opposed to just like this idea of it being like charity? Oh, let's do DEI because it's the right thing to do. Beyond it being the right thing to do, it's, it's like the smart thing to do. It's going to grow the business. It, it, it is. It is. Um, I've, I've been in my career for a while, and sometimes I was approached by other banks for me just to be in an area where I'm able to serve 
that area because it's the black community. They're not mm -hmm. able to reach that community because they have the, they call it the wrong person represented. Right. Right. But then they need somebody black enough that the community can relate to. Representation. Yeah. But the key is that while, so that's, that, that's, that's the kind of work that I do with DI because it's great that they brought you in, right? And you're you're able to represent. So then you're attracting more clientele. But your experience has to also be one in which you want to stay, right? Because yeah. you're, you might be bringing in clientele. However, you might be, you know, I'm just hypothetically just sharing um, yeah. what I've seen. However, the person next to you, your colleague who started at the same time you did, you know, they're being promoted. They got promoted twice and you're still in the same position, right? Hypothetically speaking. Well, oh, then I think point you're going to start to wonder, well, what the heck's going on, right? So that's the kind of work that needs to be done or undone and yeah. understood because there are biases in performance reviews, performance evaluations, right? Studies show that, um, you know, uh, people of color and women, you know, they're, they're rated based on their personality in performance reviews, whereas white men are rated based on their actual performance, Right. And, uh, you know, they're, you, they're usually the tropes and stereotypes that perpetuate how, you know, what those ratings are and the comments that are given. Oh, she's a little aggressive, you know, things like that. So that's what we want to unpack. Yeah. Right. Because it makes a whole world of difference. So no, there's so I, many I, layers. I love, of what, you're doing. I, I love what you're mm -hmm. doing. Yeah. I, I love the book. Uh, me being a leader, it's something that. I have to take with me, yeah. even to work. Like just aside from, I, I mean, I, I feel as though I was born a leader. That's what, that's what I call them. Like I'm a firstborn in my family. I, I have, yeah. so, I had so much responsibility from the time I was young. I take care of too much, and yeah. then nobody really teaches you like how to be that great leader. It's yeah. at the end of the day, they can give you so much training. It's up to the individual to actually utilize what you are learning. Uh, to give to your team so when yeah. i was listening to your um to abc i'm like wow this is really insightful yeah um it's they do give us the training but not to this perspective well i mean having been um i've run learning and development departments for for many years now on a global scale what you do learn like you said the learning you don't want a training culture. You want a learning culture. A training culture is people go into a training room and they go, okay, trainer, tell me what I need to know. And now like you're, you know, make magic. So I retain it. That's just That's not how adults up. learn. A learning community is where peer to peer learning happens and learning really happens outside of the training rooms, right? Like it's when you apply what you, you learn 100%. and it works or it doesn't work. And then you go back and you try to figure out why it didn't work. And then you try it again. That is what you know, that's really what I felt was most important in this book, like to allow people to take just a little bit of what I said in, you know, the first chapter, second chapter, try it, see if it works and then build off of that. That's how people learn. I mean, that's like, you know, if you have a really effective manager, management, manager program, manager development program, yeah. that's what it should include. Yeah, no, it's it's great, great stuff. I encourage anybody who's looking to be a leader, who is in leadership already, to grab the book. And for us immigrants, let's take the guide, Illegal Among Us. I love it.
I, I love what you're doing. I appreciate you for pouring into our community. Your oh, story thank you for having is me. so inspiring. So many of us are learning from this story. I, I have so much takeaways. That there's so many people in the world that are going to be like eye-opening type of conversation that we've just had. So how much. can people find you on social media and how can we support yeah. everything else aside from the books? What else are you working on that we can support you? Yeah, I mean, just... Um, you can find me by going to either my website. So martinecalau.com is probably the, the first place you can go. It's really focused on DEI, but um, anything related to immigration, there is a link, right, to illegalamongus.com. So go to either website. You'll you'll see my social media handles there. I would I say just go to the website. You see the social media handles. You can click on them. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. I think just the most important thing is tune in to my website. I have a monthly on September 20th. I have I offer a monthly master class on DEI to HR professionals. It's complimentary. It's an hour long. It's you know, an hour lunch break. Um, so I welcome anyone who is, you know, interested in moving DEI forward in the workplace there to join, right? It's every month. So September 20th is the next one, but then there's going to be one in October and so forth. And then, yes, thank you. And then also, like I said, you know, um, go to my um, immigration website. If you're looking for any resources, these are resources, best practices that I developed in interacting and talking to immigration lawyers, right? And talking to and understanding the community and what they're they're challenged with these days. Reach out if you have any questions. Uh, you know, my my contact information is on both of my websites. Nice. At this point, you've been through ups and downs and now you are where you are today. Do you feel you found your concrete pastures? Have I found my concrete pastures? You know what? I would say that I am building my concrete pastures. Yeah, nice. I'm building it. So I'm creating each each stone by stone, brick by brick. And I like that, right? Because I really nice. feel like, um, you know, I, I feel very, like I have agency in that. So I feel good about that. And I've built quite a bit. There's more to do. Nice. You, yeah. listen, you, you're giving so much to the community and... We are here to support you throughout your journey and how you are building your concrete pastures. We are here to support you. Yeah. Last question, what motivates you? Do you have any quote that you live by? I'm inspired by so many people. You've inspired yeah. me. You are now on the list. <laughs> yeah. I would say my favorite quote, if I were in my office at, at you know, my home, I would just pull it up, but it's on a card. Um, it's by Albert Einstein. I can't, you know quite synthesize it the way he does, but it really goes something along the lines of, you know, either everything in life is a miracle or nothing is a miracle. You get to choose. And that's what inspires me. This is how I make a choice every day, how I'm going to show up in life, you know, just being grateful and seeing everything with wonder or, you know, just focusing on, you know, the downs that I've had, you know, emphasizing those. So it's a choice at the end of the day. You know, that's, that's one. And then the other that I also like, that's kind of along the same lines is, you know, in life, you know, we can, we all get a chance to write our life story as a comedy, a tragedy, or a horror, right? Um, we also get to choose that, right? And so anytime we 
our stories of tragedy, lots of tragic stories out there and our stories could be tragic. Just look back and think, well, if I were gonna turn this into a comedy, how would I, right? That's really, really hard to do. But I, I, I've done that. I, I, I like that. I, I like that because it, it's so easy to focus on, oh, look at what happened to me. Look at it. At yeah. least when you look back and like, okay, let's, how can I make this into a comedy? Something I can yes. laugh, look back and laugh at it. I'm like, oh my God. Ha ha ha. Yeah. Oh. It's pretty cool. If you no can idea. Do I've been amazing. Thank I'm so, so much, happy you've been able to, to be here today. Thank oh my you God. for your time. I appreciate you and the uh, work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for contributing. I hope we have you back for Absolutely. CEI. Anytime. <laughs> because yes. there's so many immigrant leaders out there. We all need to learn how to be great leaders. All right. Thank you. Yes. Right. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for lending us your ears. It's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer. You can continue to support us by liking, sharing, and following us on our social media pages. The links are all in the show notes. We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming. Yeah.